The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we've been looking at this teaching of the Buddhas on karma, which is, many of you know, but it's one of those misunderstood topics. Karma is really not looking so much about our story, about who I am and where I came from as a person, where I'm going. But it's more focused, more interested in what is the mind adding to the mind stream, to what's unfolding. What is the mind adding right now? What kind of quality or what kind of tendencies of mind are being set in motion, what seeds are being planted right now. And we're actually training our mind to sense, to have this sense of responsibility that how I'm showing up right now, it matters. So if we're, for example, right now, if we're indulging in distraction or indulging a kind of complaining mind, or judging mind, or sort of that mind that promises, you know, if you're good, you can have popcorn tonight, or something like that. So whatever particular pattern is present in the mind with identification, so the mind is identified with the pattern, then in a sense, in a very real sense, that groove, that tendency gets cut a little deeper, becomes a stronger tendency in the mind. And so the way we got here with this personality, these tendencies, these habit energies, well, of course, it got set in motion, as we might imagine, one mind moment after another, certain things were watered, certain things were not watered, and then we end up with a mind like the mind we have. And in a collective way, we end up with the world, collectively, you know, collectively all of our minds, the world the way it is, it also got set in motion through this lawful dynamic that in Buddhism we call karma. Karma is just a a more sophisticated, more refined understanding of cause and effect. It's not linear, it's more interdependent. There are many forces that are, in a sense, co-authoring. But the thing that's relevant to you and me is what is my mind doing right now? And what, given what my mind is doing right now, what sort of seeds are being planted? And in a more, you know, relevant way, how can I show up? How can I be in the moment? How can I keep showing up moment by moment in a way that sets in motion what my heart deeply aspires to. What does your heart deeply aspire to? A lot of the time we feel helpless, like, well, it doesn't matter because I'm just being swept along by these big forces. I don't really have any control in my life, so I'm just trying to eke out happiness when I can find it, grab what I can get. But if we take up this practice of being mindful, being mindfully aware, having that 
some degree at least, some continuity of present moment awareness, the thing that arises in our mind is we see that it matters. That is the, you know, in terms of how the Buddha taught, that is the first powerful insight that, in a sense, rocks our world. We see that what the mind is doing really matters in terms of what the mind is going to be like down the road. It really matters. Now, we may not, I mentioned this last week, we may not want the responsibility. We might prefer to imagine it doesn't matter. But then we just end up doing what we've always done, getting the same results we've always gotten in the past. But once we realize it does matter, then we can, in a way, we're no longer going to fall into that habit of thinking we're helpless or that it doesn't matter. And we just, little by little, start growing up, being a, what you could say is a, a spiritual person, somebody who isn't indulging in ideas of being helpless, somebody who's willing to do what can be done, like and taking the, the big picture, not expecting immediate results, but content to keep planting seeds, like, If I keep planting seeds, not everyone will take root, but if I keep, you know, just imagine you, every single day, you planted 100 trees, right? And you started when you were 15, and now you're, you know, whatever, 55. So for that many years, 100 trees a day, there would be some results, right? And not only would all some of that, some percentage of those trees have taken root and grown up. But some of those trees that had taken root would have propagated their own seedlings, right? And on and on like that. And then when you take the really long view, somebody spending a lifetime planting a hundred positive seeds a day. Not now now I'm not talking about trees, I'm talking about seeds of kindness, seeds of wisdom, seeds of clarity, seeds of forgiveness, seeds of fearlessness. If we were actually planting these seeds every day, well, we wouldn't be a miserable, if we get to 80 years of age, we wouldn't be a miserable 80-year-old, right? If we've been planting seeds of happiness all life long, Now, the the scary thing, and I think appropriately scary thing, is to be honest about the kinds of seeds we have been planting. Like even today, how many seeds of distraction, denial, delusion, like pursuing things we know that don't lead to happiness, but we pursued them anyway. We gave our life, we put our mind to something that with any kind of reflection we would know, like, that's not setting anything positive in motion. <coughs> How many times today, today did we feed the complaining mind by getting identified with our irritation or feed the judging mind by being identified with judging, feed the raging mind by being identified with our self-righteousness, feed the lusting mind by getting identified with the thought like, if only I could have that. 
I'd be happy, that'd be great. And it, to bring that to mind can shock us in a useful way like, well, I don't want to set that emotion. I don't want to plant the seeds for that to be, in a sense, who I am or the kind of experiences I'll be experiencing. There's a simple, powerful poem that I like that I've been reading this week for the, the practice groups. And this is written by Portia Nelson. It's called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. Chapter one and chapter two really describe sort of the normal state for most of us most of the time. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Right, so that the first two chapters really about how we end up in these cycles of suffering, being stressed, feeling betrayed. But somehow, like this insight I mentioned a while back, a few minutes ago, where we, the mind really sees that it matters, like how the mind is paying attention, what the mind is doing, it really matters. That's an insight because now we're not helpless. We can start to take responsibility for how the mind is relating. We can't make this moment different than it is, but how I relate to this moment is definitely in play. But these first two chapters are somehow thinking life is happening to me, like I'm falling in that hole, but it isn't my fault. You know, somebody put that hole there. What were they thinking? So here's chapter three. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it, I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It's my fault. I get out immediately. Right? So now there's still the force of habit. We see our mind judging. We see our mind complaining. We see our mind lusting. You know, Whatever your particular habits are in your mind in terms of how you negotiate your day and sort of the default mood or activity of your mind. You know, it's different for each of us, but <clears throat> we have those go-to places, right? To fill up the space of our lives when we're feeling a little, little unfed, what does our mind generally do, right? Do we fantasize? Do we look for distraction? Do we complain and blame? Do we go regurgitate old pains? Oh, yeah, that happened to me. This wasn't fair. And, you know, what do we do? Not all bad, of course. So, but at some point, we realize we're doing it. We realize that's a habit, like in the poem, to fall into the hole. But we no longer sort of fall into the habit of thinking it's somebody else's fault that they put the hole there. We own it. Yeah. I know there's a hole there. I keep falling in. You know, I know this is my tendency in a relationship to act this way, to seek out this kind of person. Or I know this is my tendency around food, around money, around power, around, you know, these 
relevant, important places in our lives. It's a habit. But it's my responsibility to see it, to relate to it in ways that are more and more skillful. And we learn through trial and error. It's not like we have the answer, like how to relate, how to show up to this part of my life, like money or sex or family stuff or relationship stuff. We may not know, but we know it's our responsibility to learn. So what do we do? We pay attention. Well, okay, I'm relating this way. Let's see what happens. So even if we don't have a clue how to be skillful, we can track like, okay, I'm doing this, I'm avoiding this, and then this is what gets set in motion in the mind. This is what's getting strengthened, or this is what's getting weakened in the mind in terms of tendencies or habits. So one way or another, we learn. And we learn how to, you know, over time, we learn the difference between planting unwholesome seeds and planting wholesome seeds. It's just so interesting how I see it in my own life. I'm sure upon reflection you'll see it in your life too. It's just so interesting to be honest about the justifications our mind gives itself for doing things that upon reflection we know aren't helping ourselves or others. Whether it's something relatively simple like eating more than we need to eat or eating the kinds of foods that aren't good for us, we don't digest well or something, or spending too much time in an activity that means that we're not going to be able to show up to these other responsibilities in our life, or spending too much money on something that we shouldn't be spending money on. It's just really, I mean, what we normally do is try not to notice when we're engaged in unskillful habits, but when we do notice it, then to, to look at how the mind justifies it. And instead of scolding ourselves, just see it in living color. Right? We do this with our friends, or parents do that, this with their children, or teachers with their students. You know, where the student is giving the teacher their excuse, you know, the dog ate it, or something like that, about homework, or whatever it might be. But the teacher doesn't have, doesn't sort of judge. They're just there with that sort of very simple, clear knowing, right? And that's enough because it's almost like they're a mirror, the parent, the teacher. For us individually, it's our wisdom. It's like a mirror. And and here's the rationalization why we did what we did. And that wisdom is like this very perfect, non-judging mirror. Because the falseness of the rationalization sort of falls on its own weight falls apart due to its own weight, its own falseness. We don't have to judge ourselves or hate ourselves or call ourselves an idiot. Don't you know about karma? You don't get away with nothing. You know, you better get to your act together or you're going to end up in hell. I mean, we don't have to sort of tell ourselves these stories. We just have to observe things as they are. We have to see it. We have to feel it. And that's it. And you can't really do this in a mean way. If there's any judgment, if there's any hate, if there's any disgust, you're not really seeing and feeling the karmic fruit of your actions, your thoughts, your justifications, or you know, basically any mental activity. The only way to really 
receive the karmic fruit, the consequences, is this kind, intimate presence. And that's what changes things, not hatred. Right? There's a very famous line in the uh, Dhammapada, hatred never ceases through hatred, but non-hate through love alone does it end. This is the eternal or ancient truth. Hatred doesn't cease by hatred, but by love alone, by non-hate alone. This is the eternal truth. So back to the poem. So I think I had read chapter three. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It's my fault. I get out immediately. So this is the birth of wisdom, knowing that we're falling in holes, knowing that it matters how my mind is showing up. The attitude matters. The understanding matters. The quality of mindful awareness, the continuity of awareness matters. Chapter four. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Still in that world of good and bad. And then the last chapter, chapter five, I walk down another street. (laughs) I like it. I don't know if the poet meant it this way, but it really in some ways corresponds to deeper insight where, you know, it's not so much that a human being, a living being, ever gets out of the world of karma, right? What would that mean? Because this conditioned realm is just, it operates in a conditional way, in a lawful way, in a cause and effect way, right? But the way that we walk down a different street, like in terms of the insight, the deeper insight that gradually arises or dawns in the mind after a lot of practice, It's not that we're not in the world of karma, cause and effect, but it dawns on the mind to leave it all alone, to leave the interdependent world of cause and effect, the conditional world, the lawful world, to just let it be what it is. But normally when we hear that, we think, you know, well, yeah, I'm going to, me, I'm going to retreat from the world of causality. Okay, all you guys, the whole world, everything but me, I'm not playing that game anymore. I'm just going to let it all be. But, but what wisdom, the deeper insight, what wisdom understands is even that kind of negotiating, that's also cause and effect. So when we leave the world of cause and effect alone, when we let go, right? We use that phrase a lot, letting go. But we have to be really humble that we don't, realize what letting go is, actual letting go. So here's just some words that can point to the experience. Letting go means we also let go of our scrambling personality that wants to let go, the neurotic personality that wants to be an enlightened being. We let everything be nature. Nature is just another word for cause and effect or the conditional unfolding of everything. We're letting everything be what it is. That's how, in a sense, wisdom is liberated from karma. It's 
not by making karma go away, cause and effect, the conditional unfolding, but just understanding, yeah, it is the way that it is. Now, are we willing to live that way? So there's this awareness, right, of what? Well, awareness of what's out there and awareness of, of what's in here. And can the awareness leave everything alone? And you see this, how, how this relates to our sitting practice. So initially, like just to go through the whole sort of deepening of wisdom that we as practitioners go through in our practice, you know, when we first start to sit, it's like, I'm going to get control of this life because it's out of control, you know, and the mind in particular is out of control. So I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to catch when it's acting out. And I'm going to, you know, through some willful action, I'm going to make my mind relate in different ways. I'm not going to be greedy. I'm going to be kind. I'm not going to be aversive. You know, I'm going to be forgiving. I'm not going to try too hard. I'm going to relax. I'm not going to be distracted. I'm going to have the continuity of awareness. Right? Is, doesn't this sound like what we're doing when we're learning to practice? Yeah. And it's a, I don't think there's any way to avoid that place in practice. And that place in practice lasts for a long time. Lifetimes, maybe. Who knows? Where, basically, we're taking the practice personally. It's a personal training that's going to benefit me. And then after a lot of good practice, very gradually, generally, it dawns in the mind that wanting to be a good practitioner, wanting success in practice, is also a heavy trip. The idea of me having a good sit, the idea of me letting go of that stuff, those obsessive thoughts, the idea, all of that is a burden. It's not quite as much of a burden as just letting my mind be crazy, obsessive, right? So it's still in the step in the right direction to be this sort of, have this inner dharma parent that wants to get your act together Right? That's better than just letting your habit energies act themselves out to start looking at the habit energies, categorize, well, that's a really good habit, that's a really bad habit, these I'm not so sure of yet. Right? That's that sort of early stage where we're sort of getting a sense of what's skillful, what's unskillful, trying to feed what's skillful, trying not to feed the unskillful habits of the mind. Right? But even as we're doing that and getting better at feeding the skillful, not feeding the unskillful, it just dawns on the mind how much work it is to be skillful, right? And then there's, an, then there's an undercurrent. We still keep doing that because, like I said, not doing it, we realize, doesn't help. But doing it, as helpful as it is, is still stressful, right? So then it dawns on the mind that trying to be a good person, as good as it is, isn't the ultimate answer on the spiritual path. So this is how our understanding of karma matures. So now there's another phase of practice that kicks in. Now, even for people who are beginning meditators, there will be moments where this phase of practice has kicked in. It just happens more often the longer you practice. And the next phase is, like I've mentioned, the mind starts to be suspicious about trying to be a good meditator, trying to be a good human being. It doesn't want to be a bad human being, right? 
It's just seeing the limitations of wanting to be skillful. So then we begin, the mind just is in this new phase of just letting everything be. So I'm not trying to meditate. I'm not trying to be kind. I'm not trying to have the continuity of mindfulness. I'm not trying to have a still, peaceful mind. I'm, right, this is the karmic act that has a consequence, right? So in the early stages, the karmic act is don't be greedy, don't be judgmental, be kind, be peaceful, be calm, right? So we're starving or weakening the forces of the mind, habits of the mind that we see are stressful, and we're trying to feed the ones that, we, that we've seen are kind of pleasant and kind of wholesome. But now we're in this different phase where the intervention is to leave everything alone. That's the karmic act that has consequences. Leave everything alone. But you know, this is the important thing about this phase. There's no way to leave everything alone unless the mind is radically intimate. Because the mind doesn't know what to leave alone unless it's really present. Right? So there, the mind is really awake, really seeing things clearly, and that's it. Because its karmic act isn't to try to fix things, to not feed the unwholesome and to feed the wholesome. It's to leave everything alone. Now the interesting thing is, in doing that, because we've already done all that previous work, we're still going to be feeding the wholesome and not feeding the unwholesome. But now we're doing something else. We're letting everything happen on its own. So we're basically, the intervention is practicing not being a human being, (laughs) not being a doer. There's doing happening, but we're strategically practicing being aware, but not being a doer. Not doing, not meditating, not fixing, not controlling, not trying to get enlightened. We're letting go of all that. And like everything in this conditional world, this cause and effect world, there's a consequence to that intervention. Right? And of course, our initial attempts to let go are pretty clumsy. Let go. <laughs> right? Don't do anything. It's stressful. But we get better at it like everything. It's like our initial attempts to sort of not feed the unwholesome tendencies, the addictive patterns, and to feed the wholesome qualities of mind, that's also clumsy in the beginning. But after a while, we get better at how to not feed the unwholesome qualities of mind, how to support and strengthen the wholesome qualities of mind. And the same with letting go. So here's the thing about cause and effect, about learning how to participate in this world, this conditional, lawful, interdependent world. We can't avoid, at, in moments, of sort of, from a self point of view, from a personal point of view, like, yeah, I want a different reality for myself. This is not acceptable. The pain I'm feeling, the suffering I'm experiencing. I'm going to do whatever I have to do. And I'm going to, in order to do whatever I have to, uh, whatever I can do to improve my life situation. <clears throat> I'm going to be mindful. So mindfulness initially reveals to the mind 
It matters what you're doing. It matters how you're thinking. It matters the motivation, the quality of your motivation. And that's that whole world of what you're feeding and what you're weakening. Dependent on your attitude, your mood, the quality of your mind, whether you're aware or whether you're distracted. And that, just that study of cause and effect naturally leads to that second insight, that second phase of practice, where the mind gets interested in just letting everything be. Stop being the one who is a karmic actor. That's a karmic act, to stop being the karmic actor. To stop constructing the sense of, I'm doing my practice, I'm trying to make life better. We find this, I mean, human beings stumble upon this insight, you know, the sort of stereotypic moment of somebody walking through the woods on a fall day with the light shimmering through the colorful leaves and the mind relaxes and it's just the crunch of the leaves and the flickering light and the mind relaxes a little bit more. And because of the pleasantness, because of the simplicity of the moment, the mind just naturally drops constructing the idea of being a doer. There's walking, there's seeing, there's hearing, but the mind has, just because conditions are just right, the mind has just ceased for a few seconds constructing the idea that I'm walking in the woods or the idea, I think this is beautiful, you know, or I'd like to build a cabin here, or I wish my friend were here to share this with me, right? The mind isn't constructing, isn't putting uh, somebody in the middle of experience. And then what people realize in that moment is how light, how free, how wonderfully free. They may not understand why that moment was so light and free, so expansive, so open, so devoid of any sense of separation. They may not understand what just happened, but they will know something happened. Now, later, with a lot of practice, we understand what happened. Yeah, something stopped happening. The mind, for a few moments, ceased this activity of constructing a sense of somebody doing something. And so that mind realized the mind that doesn't have that sense of somebody doing something. And that, in Buddhist terms, is an insight, an insight into the impersonal, empty nature. It sounds kind of forbidding, like, well, I'm not sure I want to know the impersonal, empty nature. But it's really, you know, to put it in different terms, you'd say, well, it's the experience where there's no sense of separation. There's no sense of there being a problem that needs to be solved or that even there was a problem or that there will be a problem. All that, momentarily at least, falls away. So when we undertake this training in karma, it's, you know, this shift initially, it's a self-project. Yeah, okay, I'm going to, now that I see the mechanics of how things work, I'm going to dig in. I'm going to really work the system. And that's really exactly what we want any child to do. I mentioned in my previous talks, you know, if you've ever seen a really good parent or 
elementary school teacher operating, they don't, you know, judge the child or blame the child if a kid's acting out. They pull the child aside and they help the child understand the natural consequences. Honey, when you do this, this is what's likely to happen. Or, oh, I see you're, you're really hurting. What happened? Or this person treated me this way. Well, let's look at that. You know, what happened before? You know, you, so you break it down and you help the child understand that, oh yeah, when things are like this, this is what comes to be, right? If you don't want that to happen, then maybe one of these things has to cease. So initially, our understanding of karma, cause and effect, we interpret from a very personal way. It's just like, I'm a guy who wants more freedom, more space in my life, a lighter life, an easier life. I don't want to fall into as many holes as I've been falling into. So what can I do? I can't change the world, but I can change how my mind is relating or what my mind is setting in motion. There's a teaching in the, in the Buddhist tradition about a horse that pulls a chariot or something like that, a wagon, a chariot. And, uh, and really thinking about ourselves as we're, we're a particular kind of horse. So you can just imagine different types of horses. One type of horse is really intelligent. And if the, the charioteer just sort of makes a little clicking sound or she you know, just sort of snaps your finger or something, the horse gets exactly what the charioteer wants to happen and makes the adjustments. Goes right, goes left, speeds up, slows down. And other horses aren't so smart, you know, and they need some uh, sort of more intrusive intervention. So maybe the charioteer has to crack the whip, but doesn't actually whip the horse, but just snaps the whip above the horse. So the horse knows you better listen to me or you're going to get hurt. And then that's motivation enough for the horse to figure out what the charioteer wants. And unfortunately, some of us, some horses, are not so smart at all, and they actually need to be beaten before we change course. So this is a lot of what we're doing in practice, like just in terms of our meditation practice. If we're this kind of horse over here, you know, we might bring a really powerful striving energy to our sitting each set, trying too hard. You know, you see that if you look around sometimes, people will have like a lot of tension in their face, trying to bring their attention right to their nose. And, and you know, they end up with a headache or they end up tension in their shoulders or, or uh they get distracted all the time because it's so unpleasant concentrating on the breath. But they just keep doing it. They just, okay, it didn't work well, but I'll do it again and I'll try harder, right? They keep sort of beating. The horse isn't getting the message until someday, hopefully, you know, out of exhaustion, they might check with somebody, okay, or with themselves. Could it be I'm doing something wrong? I mean, one... One thing we always say to people in, in terms of your practice is, because often m- making progress is a matter of balance. So if you're always making a mistake on one side of the balance, then 
you don't really know where the balance is until you're, you've learned how to make mistakes on the other side. So, for example, if you're always trying too hard, then start making mistakes in your sits where you're not trying hard enough. And then you're going to have a better sense of what right effort is in practice. So that we're, you know, this is the thing that the continuity of mindful awareness gives us. We can't stay stupid for long when we're mindfully aware because there's a feedback loop informing the mind. So now this mind, the mind that's aware in this moment, has learned from the mistakes that have been made before. So it doesn't mean we're not making mistakes, but whatever the mistake is, whatever didn't work, gets fed right back into the mind stream so that the next mind is the mind that knows that didn't work. So let's try something else. And so that mind is learning, it's growing. Whereas a mind that's not aware that's why the Buddha, you know, he painted these really incredible pictures of samsara, these cycles of suffering. That's what samsara means. How we repeat, we do the same thing, get the same results over and over and over. And it's not that we're, in a sense, stupid. We're just not paying attention. So we're missing the data that comes from feedback, from having tracked. And correlated, oh yeah, when the mind relates in this way, when the mind's greedy, when the mind's trying too hard, when the mind gets identified with frustration or boredom or judging the practice, then this is what happens. This is the natural result. Oh, that's good to see. That's good to know. Otherwise, we think... It's funny how we think being frustrated is productive. I mean, isn't it amazing? Or even more maybe pertinent at this time, you know, where we see the news and like getting tight. There we are at home, late at night, reading the news, getting tight, getting self-righteous, feeling frightened, you know, and then we try to go to bed and sleep. And we wonder why our life isn't working. It's like, but if there was even a little bit of space in the mind, like that sort of mirror-like or that reflective space that was sort of, in a sense, observing that activity and observing what it does to the sleep and then what it does to the next day and what it sets in motion, we would probably find one way or another to tease out that unskillful behavior. So what that means in our practice life is not just your formal time where you're sitting and meditating, but where, what little corners of your life, what activities in your life are you not willing to bring this reflective, mirror-like awareness into? You know, just think about, you know, I often kid myself about well, when I'm eating and nobody's around. Like, it, that's a really good place for me. Like, just the, the composure of the mind, the greed in the mind, just to be reflectively aware of what that looks like. Am I acting like my cat, my rabbit, a ravishing animal, you know, around food? Or is there a sense, it's just food. 
It's just chewing, it's just tasting, it's just what it is. Kind of a more relaxed, composed. In the Buddhist tradition, we're told to relate to food as medicine, not as entertainment. And we're not eating to entertain ourselves. We're eating to, to make the mind and body healthy and happy. So we take it as medicine, not as some, it's like I've got my radio entertainment, my internet entertainment, I've got my food entertainment. It's like, that's stressful. Anyway, we have about 15 minutes left. It would be nice to hear from folks in this world of cause and effect. We've all learned a thing or two, so it would be nice to hear from people in the community. What have you learned? And of course, any questions you have about karma or about what I've said tonight or over the last three weeks now that we've been looking at this topic. And who'd like to begin? And we are recording tonight, so if you want to keep that in mind when you share, you can. Who'd like to share a little bit? Yeah, please, Tim, start us off. Is it on? My name's Tim. Um, my question is, uh, can you talk a little bit how emotion informs karma? Yeah, so Tim asked, if you didn't hear, how emotion informs karma. Well, mostly, you know, especially early on, emotion is confusing. Because the thing about emotion is, initially, we think it's more than what it is. What is emotion actually? I mean, just think of some emotion you're feeling now, or maybe there was a poignant, relatively strong emotion you felt earlier in the day, some sadness, some excitement, some fear. So what is that direct, immediate experiencing of emotion? So it's a visceral, it kind of has mental and visceral qualities, right, to it, both the mind-body thing. But in its essence, emotion is just something being felt, something being known. It's a feeling being known, right? And uh, if, there's, if there isn't that wisdom awareness that understands this is just something being felt, then there's going to be a strong sense, I've got to do something. I'm feeling this, so I need to do something. And like pain, emotion is information. You know, it's, but it's not a perfect system, emotions. Like sometimes, like when you're feeling a lot of the pain of remorse, that could be really useful information. You know, I should probably talk to that person. I should probably make amends with that person, right? So that's like that emotion of remorse. That's useful information. Okay, I can't just leave this alone. I need to fix this. I need to talk to this person. But sometimes emotion doesn't, there really isn't anything to do with it except to let it be. It's like, and so when we have emotion, like anything, it's like comes into the present moment, into the space of wisdom awareness, and it informs the moment. And that's how we know how to be skillful. That's what I, I mentioned earlier. We can't really know how to be skillful if we're not radically intimate. If we're radically intimate, we're not only seeing what's going on around us, we're also noticing how the past, in terms of memory, is informing the present moment, right? Because like, I can't help but see Tim 
And all of my past interactions with Tim inform even this moment, right? I can't shut that, I can't shut the past off from informing because those latent memories or whatever that had to do with Tim, they're just there. And so when I see that form, all of that past is right there. And then any emotion too. And all of that in a way is moving, dancing here in the present moment. And I'm training my heart to be radically present in a continuous way. And then whatever I say to Tim, however I relate to him, even how I think about him, then that's the karmic act. That's how I'm setting emotion in the future. So everything that's showing up in the present informs how we're responding. Now the key is to be intimate with the present without taking it personally, without being confused by the emotion or even confused by what's happening around us. This is, you, you know, we see this sometimes in our friends and ourselves even, where something dramatic is happening, but we're, we're not losing our balance. Okay, this is how it is. What should we do? We don't, because it's, it always comes down to, well, is there anything that needs to be done now? Sometimes there is something to be done in a moment. Sometimes there's nothing to be done. But regardless, this is a famous teaching from Shantideva, a famous Buddhist monk from, I think, the ninth century. You know, if there's something to do, do it. If there's nothing to do, there's nothing to do. But in either case, what would be the point of getting tight? Even in a really dramatic, difficult situation, life and death situation, if there's something to do, do it. If there's nothing to do, there's nothing to do. Can we let it be that simple? There's a very graphic, I sometimes hesitate even saying this, but um, simile in Tibetan Buddhism of a parent, a limbless parent on the side of a river watching their child being swept away. Right, so basically nothing you can do, right? But there you see your beloved being swept away. Now I'm not saying that we're not gonna be distraught or traumatized even, but you can see that to whatever degree the mind would be able to uh, take care of itself, to be wise, you wouldn't add, you know, you, there would be that very natural, terrible feeling of loss, like a ripping away, right? But you wouldn't amplify it in any way. You wouldn't proliferate around it. You would just feel what you feel. And if there was something you could do, you would do it. And if there's nothing you can do, there's nothing you can do. But to lament and beat your breast and, you know, to sort of freak out, although it's, it might be what we'd say, you know, understandable that we would do that, we could also understand it's not helping. It's understandable, but it's not helping. So there's some thoughts, Tim. Thanks for your question. I don't, I'm not sure if that mic's working, but people could just speak up. Oh, it's picking it up? Okay. Good, so we'll keep using it. Who would like to go next? Comments from your own practice you'd like to share with the community or questions you might have? Hi, yeah, my name is Ben. Uh, I have a question about 
kind of the phases of practice you were talking about, um, how you, you start out in practice going from this sort of, um, feeding wholesome, wholesome habits and, and starving others. And then you, you move on to this kind of next phase of practice where you kind of let go of even that and, um, just sort of accept things. And, uh, I was wondering if you could clarify how, um, exactly, uh, action arises out of that next phase of practice. Cause in, in the previous state, it seems as if taking action is very easy, you know, you feed the wholesome and you starve the unwholesome. Mm-hmm. But in the next phase, this sort of just, um, letting go and accepting how action arises out of that. Yeah. I suppose. No, that's a really good question, Ben. If you didn't hear him, he was asking that in that deeper part of practice where the heart is understanding like trying to be a good meditator or trying to be a good human being is itself stressful. And it just begins to explode. Now remember, the personality is still engaging, but Ben's question is, where does that action arise? But an interesting question would be, what would keep that action from arising? What would keep your personality, let's call it, from responding in the moment? Because although you're not on purpose constructing a doer who needs to do your life, you're not constructing a non-doer who is not going to do your life. You're not constructing either a doer or a non-doer. You're just letting the personality... It's really a shift where you're understanding that the personality... And the conditioned mind is nature, not self. Right? So you're kind of giving back to nature what was always nature. Your personality was never you. It's part of nature. It's like weather. Right? And you're even the conditioned mind, meaning your habit energies, your mental tendencies, that's nature. It's not self. So that, that deeper insight that, you know, it's a, it's a long, gradual kind of practice to sort of clarify that understanding. And what we're doing in that place is we're learning to trust everything as nature, including the personality that is responding, that is acting, that is showing up or not showing up. And this isn't perfect, but in a sense, we're taking refuge in the knowing of it, in the awareness of it, but the awareness of it doesn't freeze up anything. It doesn't limit anything, right? It's like a mirror. A mirror doesn't control, it's not a controlling presence. But initially it seems like when I'm aware, I have to behave, right? But there's more there than just awareness. If you're feeling like when I'm aware, I have to behave, then there's also something else there. What's the other thing that's there? Judgment. A sense of a doer who's, what is that doer doing? Judging what's right and what's wrong. And now that can be noticed. Oh, look at that. Judging. Judging's being known. Right? That's not you. That's a personality habit. And that's how the mind becomes liberated from these conditioned tendencies of the mind. I know that sounds a little trippy. But... That's what happens. First, we start sort of stepping back and we see the conditional lawful nature and we learn how to participate in it. And then we start seeing how much is part of that conditional 
lawful nature. Like even the me who wants to be skillful in the lawful unfolding is also part of that lawful unfolding. So we observe that. And we keep observing like that. And to do that, you have to keep letting go. Letting go of identifying or personalizing these things. Now, remember, this happens naturally in practice. It's nice to hear about it. It can inspire us. It can help clarify some of our own experiences that we've already had. But you don't need to do anything special. You just, like, from a personal point of view, you just want to be more skillful. And you just track experience with awareness. And this insight naturally dawns from that continuity of awareness, trying to have, trying to be more skillful in our lives. Yeah, thanks, Ben, for the good question. Time for one more. If anybody else has a comment or question, yeah, Mesky, please. All the way in the back row. So it seems to me that we kind of circle back where we started to begin with. Somebody that's, well, maybe maybe the journey helps, but somebody that just does whatever, not even aware of, you know, like the, I'm just thinking about especially the personality, right? Somebody that did not meditate and just go about however they are. And the person that just really traveled and let it go are in the same place, in a way. On the outside, it, it could possibly look the same from the outside. From the inside, it wouldn't. I'm yeah. just thinking about, like, let's say a child that's mm-hmm. not necessarily too invested. Or a lot of times people talk about animals, too, you know, as an example of pure nature. And I think there's something to that metaphor, you know, to be childlike, to be like a wild animal. And the, and the Buddha used like wild deer as a simile for um, the sort of lightness and nimbleness and freedom in the mind. But it's not a perfect metaphor because we know with children and we know with animals that they're very tied to their conditioned and uh, <clears throat> They haven't done that middle work of purifying greed, anger, and delusion out of the repertoire, right? So a deer might look really great when it's grazing, but what happens in mating season or what happens, you know, when there's competition or who knows? Same with kids, <laughs> right? We've maybe remember your own self as a child, but certainly have seen how children, even really cute children, can really suffer. So we need to leave it here. It's 9 o'clock. Thanks for the nice comments. Just take a couple breaths together. Notice how the mind is, how it's showing up what's being fed, what's being weakened. And the bottom line, when in doubt, if you want to plant positive seeds, when in doubt, 
Just be mindfully aware. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.